I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show today, we ask where next for Channel 4 as the Tories appear to call time on privatisation again. How free is the British press? We raise an eyebrow after journalists were cuffed for covering climate change protests on the M25. Plus, we talk podcasting and the World Cup with Gary Lineker and his business partner, Tony Pasta. And in the media quiz, we discover who's hacked off. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, Disney missed fourth quarter revenue targets, but added 12.1 million users to Disney Plus, taking its total subspace to 164 million. Bob Chapek, Disney's CEO, said the streaming service had reached a turning point and would be profitable by 2024. Elon Musk rolled out, then reversed new badges that identify particular categories of official accounts. On Twitter, Musk tweeted... Please note that Twitter will do lots of dumb things in the coming months. We will keep what works and change what doesn't. In M&A news, BBC Studios has taken full ownership of Voltage TV, whose credits include Inside the Factory and the British Tribe Next Door. Fremantle, meanwhile, took a majority stake in 72 films, which made the rise of the Murdoch dynasty. And members of the National Union of Journalists have signed a motion of no confidence in senior management at BBC England in response to the local radio cuts discussed right here on the pod last week. But on today's show, we're looking at the world of broadcasting. First up, we have Liz Howe, the Professor Emeritus of Journalism at City University London. Uh, Liz, welcome. What have you been up to? Oh, not much really. I mean, you know, trying to cope with autumn and the change in the hours and all that stuff. Watching the news all the time, watching loads of telly, unlike what Stephen tells us we're not doing. <laughs> well, Stephen, look, you've, you've already been half intro there, so always bringing the sunshine. It's Stephen D. Wright. Welcome back. Oh, yeah. Hiya. So tell us what you've been <laughs> writing. You've been writing in the Times, rubbishing the idea I'm, that uh, TV is going through a golden age. Yeah, so basically I'm, I'm a truth teller, you know, uh, unafraid to say the unsayable, which is that telly is getting worse. So, uh, so there it is. And why is that? What's your theory behind that? In a sentence, less risk-taking, more derivative dull programming by uh, ratings-hungry bosses that won't take risks. There you go. Back on the show is uh, peerless media reporter Tara Conlon. Tara, did I spot you at the Crown premiere this week? Yeah, were you there as well? I wasn't, but uh, I saw you tweeting. (laughs) Ah, right, yes. 
I wasn't oh, either. Well, it was uh, it was uh, it was very busy. It was very glam. There was um, lots of champagne. Yeah, it was black tie. There was um, yeah, the who's who of Netflix. Ted Sarandos was there. So yeah, it was all very very glam. Very good. Uh, great fun to watch. What was Ted saying? Because it's not. I mean, it's not very often that he comes over and does a little speech. I know he's like streaming royalty, isn't he? So yeah. they were lucky to get him. He was saying, obviously, with praising the show and saying, you know, how brilliant it is. And but also he sort of hinted at the fact that people have been casting aspersions as to the uh, factual accuracy of some of it. Um, was saying, you know, people have been talking about The Crown for the last couple of weeks. Now they're going to be talking about, you know, the show and how brilliant it is. OK, although it hasn't got brilliant reviews, has it? <laughs> Do you know, yeah, some people, but I actually, I, I, I loved it. We saw episodes one and three. Uh, and episode three about Mohammed Al-Fayed actually was really interesting. Probably the royals won't like it, but it was um, sort of a self-contained ep, actually. It was really interesting to watch, actually. So, you know, it's great fun. We, great script as well, you know, lots of zingers. But yeah, the royals probably won't like it, but I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Well, it's streaming now on Netflix, but let's get on with our first story. The Financial Times reported last week that Rishi Sunak is expected to kill plans to sell Channel 4 amid efforts to fix the economy and unite his party. So it's RIP privatisation for a second time under this government, but it seems unlikely that the industry will be doing much mourning. So, Stephen, it's unlikely that the industry is going to be doing much mourning of these plans being ditched. No, absolutely. I think everybody's delighted, relieved, I think is the thing. But we're all a little bit sort of uh, scared because you never know with the Tories and their red meat for the right wingers. But I mean, I think there was never any kind of business proposition. There was never any kind of real philosophical reason. There was nothing, nothing made sense about this whole argument. And so the idea that this is sort of drifting away is kind of um, a bit of common sense. Um, You know, Channel 4 needs to be what it is. I mean, Channel 4 could be better, definitely. That's That's a different argument. But in terms of a political kind of the machinations to kind of take Channel 4 off the, the table or whatever, to me, it was all about Boris Johnson and his ego. And um, and hopefully we've, 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 we've left those days behind, you know. But I mean, if you want to talk about how to make Channel 4 better, I can talk about that until the cows come home. And, you know, it's the 40th anniversary. We've talked a lot on the podcast about pros and cons of privatisation. But if it looks like that that debate is coming to an end it would be good to focus on on where next for channel four and how it avoids sort of being yanked onto this merry-go-round yet again so go on talk to us a bit about how you think channel four could improve Mm. the obvious thing and i think it's really obvious to everybody you don't have to be a media professional you just have to be a viewer you know the the last couple of weeks we've seen this 40th anniversary uh sort of you know celebrations there's been lots of swanky parties in the west end but there's also been some quite brave Channel 4 programming. And of course, this is what sort of the irony is, is that all the stuff they put on, Jimmy Carr destroys art or, you know, the the Friday Night Live or whatever it is, are very old-fashioned shows. They feel from the 80s and 90s when Channel 4 had a really distinct personality and an identity. And the big problem with Channel 4 right now is it's got a very muted, neutral sort of BBC2 light bit of whatever and this is the problem with Channel 4. You know, Channel 4 had this incredible sort of spirit and a USP, and that doesn't quite exist anymore. And now part of this is the fact that I am an old Channel 4, you know, face. I was a commissioning editor in 2001. And so I remember Channel 4 in that the sort of glory days when it really did take on the world. 
Whereas now, you know, particularly after the last few years of kind of trying to keep everything quiet and not kind of frighten the horses with this kind of government threat, Canonfall feels very sort of, I don't know, not lost, but not itself. And that's all it really needs to do is go back to what it used to be. I think the fact that this sort of truth or dare season that they've just done feels like they're deliberately trying, whereas they should be just be doing this naturally. It should be organic. They, uh, they've advertised, you know, Frankie Boyle and the monarchy. They've dropped that now. The old Channel 4 wouldn't have dropped that. They would have they'd have paused it maybe, but they wouldn't have dropped it. It just feels like Channel 4 is you know, commissioning with one hand tied behind its back. That's, that's basically the problem. Yes. It needs to be unfettered and going for it and creative. And then, then we get the natural, organic, taking risks, you know, making, you know, sort of uh, unique programs that can't go on anywhere else. Because at the moment you could see shows, shows on Channel 4. Most of the Channel 4 shows are feature shows that could have been on BBC2. I mean, Bake Off was on BBC2. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel Channel 4-y firing on all cylinders. Tara, I mean, Stephen's talking about the sort of creative side of Channel 4 there. Do you think his argument that Channel 4 is less risky makes it an easier target for privatisation and will do so again in the future? It's chicken and egg, isn't it? Is it taking fewer risks because it's afraid of what might happen to it politically? Is it looking over its shoulder? Um, but, you know, on that front, I think think the fact, um, you know, I haven't had this verified, but didn't Therese Coffey go to one of the 40th anniversary parties and sing happy birthday she did I, mm-hmm. I saw i saw a tweet of her singing yeah so it may be for privatization you know it's sort of it, it ain't over well i'm not fat shaming but it ain't over till the person formerly in charge of obesity of the nation you know sings but maybe that means maybe that signals they can draw a line and perhaps they won't be looking over their shoulder i wanted as well been quite a lot of publicity about my dead body which is the first tv dissection which reminded me of what was it the um um, Stephen, I'm sure you'll know as well. What was the the mm. guy who he didn't dissect bodies? Well, the Gunter. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Gunter. What's his face? The German. Bloke. Yeah, but it sort of reminded yeah. me a, a bit of about that, and it's. Mm. it's Sorry, just how... to interrupt you. There's been at least three dead people doing their documentaries mm. on Channel yeah. Four in the last twenty years. We had we had a show that was the boy whose skin fell off. I don't know if you remember yeah. that one. I do, that yeah. started with the guy saying, "If you can hear me speaking, I am now dead." I did a show with Bob Monkhouse that he filmed uh, and then it went out after he died. It's like there's there's been this kind of, you know, death, the final taboo been done before. I mean, it's that's that's my point. No, no, I I agree. And I wonder whether or not it's it's because it's an older platform. I know it's all it's all it's sort of subsidiary satellite, um, you know, on demand offerings now bringing it all into being called sort of Channel 4. Maybe because it's a legacy platform, well, it's not legacy, it's only 40, but, you know, in comparison with the new young streamers, maybe that is is why it, it feels like that. And, and and perhaps, you know, with the more out of London approach that they've now got, which they've sort of had to do because of privatisation partly and also being more available in the regions, maybe that will bring in some new ideas. You know, there's always that story about it. are there any new ideas left? And, you, and you're right, Stephen, you know, dissection, dead bodies sort of, has been done, as it were. A forty-year-old can't really be sort of the enfant terrible, can it? Really, of of, of <laughs> telly. Um, but you know, just putting on some some fashionable trainers isn't really going to do it, is it? Yeah. So I mean, we're talking very much about the creative side here, but obviously the the, the government's sort of official position was that Channel Four is not sustainable in its current form and needs to be freed from the shackles of government ownership to thrive. Do we think that that argument is credible and does Channel 4 need to change its business model 
to compete with the lights of Amazon and Netflix, Liz? Well, you've got a problem, obviously, if advertising revenue is going to decline anyway, so that that's one difficulty for, for Channel 4, so that perhaps another business model might need to be brought into the situation. I do think that the fact that the privatisation crisis has hung over them has probably been rather a, a difficult thing to deal with, made it perhaps slightly sterile. On the other hand, I do think there's an awful lot of rubbish talked about Channel 4 in the past and how marvellous it was, and I can remember way back in the day having to deal with commissioning editors who are quite clearly completely nutty. I'll give you two examples of this. I was based in Carlisle, okay, and we had some good ideas for programmes and we did some stuff from Border Television for Channel 4, which was quite exciting at the time. But my um, boss at the time, Paul Corley, was summoned to Channel 4 to pitch a programme idea. When he got there, it turned out that the... Uh, the commissioning editor was off that day, but he hadn't been told. Paul hadn't been told. And his secretary said, oh, don't worry, you can go in his office and phone him. And Paul said, well, I, I could have phoned him from Carlisle. And this secretary looked completely baffled as if Carlisle was in another time zone. And Paul had to go in the office and phone this commissioning editor. And the secretary, secretary said, but at least you're in his office. Another time we went down to pitch an idea and the commissioning editor had a rabbit running around the office. I still don't understand why. So it was a bit of a crazy place in a bad way as well. Also, on another level, a personal story for me, I, I was the launch director of poor old GMTV. And um, the problem there was that Channel 4 started Big Breakfast after GMTV had been given the um, franchise on a completely different basis. The very weak IBA did absolutely nothing about it. So GMTV was absolutely you know, hamstrung from the very start because the whole business plan was based on the fact that Channel 4 was running a business programme at that time in the morning and they changed the goalposts completely. So, I mean, Channel 4 hasn't always been a great thing for the industry. It hasn't always been, you know, the white knight. Um, let's be realistic about it. And I think I'm against the privatisation of Channel 4 because I just think it's stupid and petty and it would have brought in, what, one billion for the government, which is really, really a tiny amount of money given the great crisis that we're in. It keeps... a a lot of independents going, 60 companies at least. Um, it employs 800 people, 300 of whom are in Leeds. So, yeah, just if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It may be slowly breaking, but that's a, a different argument. And once it has some security, then it can start to look again. Yeah. I mean, The Telegraph reported last month that Channel 4 was exploring whether it could be acquired by a non-profit trust as an alternative to, to privatisation. Are we at a point where we do need to be thinking about alternative business models? Yes, of, co of course we are. We, we are for all media all the time. You've got to constantly be thinking about new business models. I don't know what the answer is for Channel 4, but I sincerely hope that they're thinking about it. And um, because advertising revenue, which is about 90% of its, its income, I think, is obviously declining. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with Stephen that television's going down the pan. People are always saying that, particularly if their heyday was not this heyday which is unfortunately what always happens when you're getting on a bit. But then you get through that and you see that perhaps things just change anyway and that, you know, maybe the, the creativity will return or maybe there's an argument that the creativity hasn't really gone away. I mean, we're talking about the dead body thing. I don't think I've seen dissection as such on telly, but maybe I've missed a show where it was on. I think it sounds quite exciting. Personally, I don't think I could possibly watch it because I tend to be having a glass of wine or eating some chocolate when I watch TV. And I don't think I could do that with the dead body stuff. Well, but, in fairness know, to Channel 4, they are claiming it's a TV it first. I, I think it's because it's yeah, a I named think, yeah. individual that they are dissecting. Her name is Tony yeah. Cruz. And she, she died of a, a very rare 
form of cancer, t- cancer of the tear gland. But Tara, just coming back to the business case, Channel 4 has proposed a sort of alternative vision, haven't they? The next episode in which they suggested giving the broadcaster access to private capital while keeping its public remit. That document, which Channel 4 has published, also proposed cost-saving measures, including selling its you know, iconic Horse Ferry Road uh, headquarters. It feels like privatisation may fall off the agenda, but Channel 4 will probably have to think hard about some of these things, won't they? And we could see a different Channel 4 emerge, despite these plans being shelved. There's all sorts of things being discussed, aren't there? As you said, a trust, some sort of mutualization whether or not they they, like the BBC have done they sort of separate out parts Um, you know they're commercial anyways it's slightly different from the BBC whether or not they have access to private capital as well it's it comes down to the the issue about the moaning IP as well doesn't it well that that would be at the heart of that vision wouldn't it and and that would be a huge structural change for for Channel 4 and the industry yeah and it doesn't it doesn't have that that security to the same level as the other commercial entities have so perhaps that there is a way of doing that, but then you, you know, you, again, you change the model. But there are, you know, with the rise of the AVODs, there is, uh, there are more people going for the advertising pie. So th- there's a lot for them to grapple with, and bigger minds than than, than mine are, are are grappling with that. But I think that perhaps the only only silver lining to take out of this whole debacle is that these people are now focused on what Channel Four does and what Channel Four does well and what it doesn't do well and how it can be sustained um, for the next 40 years. That's a good point. Do you think actually this conversation, Stephen, has been healthy for Channel 4 because it you know, provokes these kinds of discussion and encourages Channel 4 to think about itself more carefully and its creative place in the UK? I think now that this conversation is healthy, I think it hasn't been healthy for the last 18 months. I think for the last 18 months, it's been like running in terror you know what I mean, pretending everything's going all right, but actually terrified that they are being sort of, you know, cut off at the knees. Whereas now, if this threat recedes, this is exactly the sort of soul searching and and whatever they should be doing. And obviously the business model of Channel 4 and the creative model has to marry. I mean, when I worked at Channel 4, the, the head of advertising, he was the highest paid executive at Channel 4, Andy Barnes, the man who literally the channel couldn't do without talked about how Channel 4 had that sort of sweet spot for advertisers because it got the young, it got the cool, it got the kind of crazy. And that was something that no other channel could do. And that's what that's, what, that's how they sold their ads. That's what that, that kind of USP. So it always comes back to that kind of Channel 4 identity. You know, when Channel 4 can do that, it is unique, you know, so advertisers will, will search it out. If Channel 4 becomes just another number on the, the listings and things, it will fade away because it needs to have that kind of unique spirit. And, and it's the one channel that really does have it, you know? All the channels have it. When they, you know, when ITV is, is really ITV, it really works. You know, it's, it's when Channel 4 works, it really works. And, and so hopefully this, I don't know, you know, this kind of, uh, the, the sort of the threat of death has been taken away, but they still need to sort of cure the patient sort of thing. It's quite know? hard, isn't it? I was thinking the other day, it's a bit like an influencer or a supermodel, you know, you're sort of known for being sort of young and attractive and cool. Uh, and then you get old. Um, what do you do? So then it's about your attitude, isn't it? You know, it's that sort of mischievous attitude. It's a bit, a bit like Nikki Haslam. You suddenly find you're forty. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't. What you don't want is to just turn into Madonna. You know, she changed the world, and now she just looks like a has been. And it's like that's what Channel Four has to remember. It's still 
an incredible force of nature. You know, the BBC as well, all these channels have to kind of believe in themselves, you know, and forget government interference, forget critical interference, whatever, and really stand up for the kind of creative, you know, the creative sort of uh, risk taking. That's what it's all about. Everything comes from that, that alone. I think you're. I think you're being very hard on them. I think that there there is a lot yeah. of good stuff still on Channel Four. It has a, a big audience, and I would like to hear it from Channel Four News. With, with privatization, there was a danger yeah. we would have lost Channel Four mm. News, and that is a great asset, and that has maintained its character. You know, with and without Jon Snow, it goes on as a very watchable, extremely different news offering, and yet utterly respectable and, and part of public service broadcasting. So that's a really good thing about Channel 4 and, and something which I think is a national treasure, actually. I just also want to say, Stephen, I mean, whilst I agree totally that it's wonderful to be creative and different, there's sometimes a danger of it being a bit silly. And one of the great things about Channel 4 at its best was dispatches. And it's serious stuff, really important, mm. serious stuff. And that's one of the things I watch on Channel 4. And, mm. and that's much more important to me than, say, the big brother factor. All very fair. Just to wrap up on Channel 4, Stephen, if Channel 4 should be less Madonna, what cultural icon should be should it be more like oh my god well i mean it should be oh god that's a really hard one i mean it should be it should be like david attenborough still causing trouble at 97 do you know what i mean it's like it's it you know age isn't uh isn't gonna uh what's that word that shakespeare said you know age shall not wither it or whatever you know custom stale it's infinite variety you know what i mean channel four just needs to be itself, that's all. And it doesn't have to be a young enfant terrible or an embarrassing uncle at a party. It just has to be that kind of spirit, have that unique spirit, that be an alternative channel, that's, that's all. Okay, let's grab the remote and flick over to ITV. ITV has said that its revenues will exceed pre-pandemic levels this year after increasing 6% to £2.5 billion in the first nine months of 2022. Its production arm, ITV Studios, has offset a decline in ad revenue. All of this as ITVX, the replacement for ITV Hub, launches next month slightly later than planned. Stephen, can you fill us in on how ITV is doing? I mean, basically, ITV always seems to do well. You know what I mean? From a kind of non-business perspective, it always comes out with these kind of scary sounding things and then goes oh guess what everyone's watching we're advertising and everything's going off and it's all brilliant itv is about to go into its biggest season you know the the winter season it's going to make money hand over fist i never worry about itv i don't believe in the kind of profit warnings they always seem to do well because there's only one itv and it seems to get that money every single time so you know i'm a celebrity pulling them in right now the advertising money is there and it will always go to itv so i i think ITV's in rude health, let's put it that way. One Love Island run will, will kind of save ITV for three months, then I'm Celebrity kicks in, then such and such chick. You know, it's like they've got these bankers. I mean, that's the problem. The problem with ITV from a, an editorial perspective is they don't have much variety because they've got these massive mega brands that just keep the channel going. You know what I mean? And people every autumn, they all tune in to watch the I'm a Celebrity, for example. I don't ever worry about ITV. You ought to worry. You ought to worry about ITV, Stephen, because it's not always been like this. There was the time when it was seen as the dinosaur. It was dying. It was 
falling down completely, advertising revenue is never going to make it again. So you've got to protect ITV2. It's mm. not ITV2 as well. You've got to protect it because it absolutely has to be there as an alternative to the BBC. And it's not going to always automatically happen because we saw in the 90s and the turn of the century that ITV was really, really under threat. And its advertising revenue is falling. I mean, it's down 14%, isn't it, on this quarter last year. So that we need to make sure that ITV is as protected as, as Channel 4 in a way, because it's a terribly important thing that we've got a, du- a duopoly at least against the juggernaut, which is the BBC. The BBC is the one that is really protected because of the licence fee or whatever sort of public funding it's going to have in the future. And ITV is just purely commercial and, and needs to be protected as an alternative. So I don't think that you can say it's always going to work, it's always going to have the bankers. It's going through a good stage now and the ITV studios have been an absolute godsend. But there again, the business model isn't perfect and that's why ITVX is going to be very interesting. I'm probably one of the many people who are very irritated by not being able to get into ITV Hub anymore, which was one of the mainstays because I love ITV and I used a lot. That's virtually redundant at the moment. It's very, it's almost impossible to get ITV Hub because they're moving to ITVX. And I think they're going to have to do it really sooner rather than later because so many people are going to be hacked off and not being able to get ITV archive programmes. They've got real issues with, with ITV Hub, haven't they, in terms of perception and uh, how people believe that it is, you know, as an experience to use. And ITVX has got a mountain to climb, hasn't it, in terms of changing Absolutely. those Absolutely. Tara, do you think it can scale that mountain? I, I think it can, actually, because uh, I've seen some of the programming and uh, the Confessions of Franny Langton in particular, uh, which is going out on ITVX, which is all embargoed, so I can't really talk about it, but based on the book by Sarah Collins. And um, it's really good. Yeah, and it, I think ITVX will provide them with that nursery slope. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a period drama, but it's a, a, a different kind of period drama. And it's really, really worth watching. And I was talking with the... Um, ITV uh, head of commercial and partnerships the other day and you know obviously the World Cup is a, is a big thing for them but they're sort of subject to the vagaries of what happens with FIFA there so I think that has obviously affected their their ad spend so far because they haven't had that sort of bump that they would usually get in the summer of advertising but I think ITVX will be important to them because you know, with other people like Netflix coming in and taking some of the ad money. ITVX can also provide, different from Netflix actually, a much more strategic, targeted load of data that they can offer advertisers, much more so than ITV Hub. So they've got this other new advertising product, which which I think will, you know, will will help them against other streamers like Netflix. And as you say, Steam as well, they've got those big bankers and, you know, its whole sort of publicity, whoever booked Matt Hancock, you know that person deserves a bonus, really, don't they? Because mm-hmm. they've uh, they've done wonders for publicity uh, this time round. Did anyone see his uh, his debut? No, I was out unfortunately, but I really, really want to. I, I, I'm going to watch it on <laughs> on Harp on Catch Up. Can't face it. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I did watch it, and I mean, I was quite taken aback at how he was welcomed by the campmates. Mm. Uh, clearly, everyone feeling very raw still about what happened during the pandemic and um people were not welcoming at all but i agree you're right whoever booked matt hancock that was a a, i think it's a you know certainly a masterstroke of publicity whether it actually works for itv whether viewers respond in the same way as the campmates whether they still think it's actually too soon 
to have someone like Matt Hancock parading themselves on reality television will be really interesting to see. I think it, it, I think it could it could go sour for ITV. I didn't watch it, but my daughter did, and she said it was really interesting because some of the other campmates were saying, um, and I'm paraphrasing it, that basically that that they thought it would ruin their experience of being on the show, and it's whether it's yeah how they perceive it as well. It could it could backfire. Yeah. Are you, Stephen, are you, I mean, you're such an avid viewer. You, you, you're not watching I'm a Celebrity this year. I like to get into it probably four, 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 five days in when they really start to lose their kind of PR, uh, what's it, the, you know, their, their training, you know, that thing where they kind of media training where they don't say this, they don't say that, and then they start to fall apart. That's when it normally gets better. I think from a PR perspective, a masterstroke. From an editorial perspective, very, very much a poison chalice. And... Um, that kind of tonal thing. I mean, if he is contrite, if he somehow opens up and the raw humanity kind of comes out, then we're going to, we're going to have TV gold and potentially a, a sort of, you know, a rapprochement with the British public. But it could all go horribly wrong. So, I mean, it's one of those ones where I sort of watch, I watch it from afar the first few days and then I sort of dip in when the sort of the, the narratives start to kind of show. But, um, yeah, it could. So right now I'm, I'm being very kind of cautious, you know, in my... Uh, in my, in my language, I suppose, you know, wait till it gets better, I think. Well, yes. well I hate consumer yeah. reaction. Well, that's then. where it might have some success is sort of bringing back viewers or enticing yeah. new ones. Let's end part one right there. We have a real treat for you in this week's Deep Dive. I sat down with Gary Lineker and his Goal Hanger podcast co-founder, Tony Pasta. We discuss their chart-topping shows and how Gary and Tony are feeling with the World Cup around the corner. I think we've not really got the time to be as excited as we are normally for, for tournaments because obviously the, the, there's another set of fixtures at the weekend. Um, so it's, it's very unusual. It's a unique World Cup because we're going straight into it um, halfway through a season without any break. That's why we've got obviously a lot of players are injured and missing out on this World Cup because normally you get about a month at the end of the season before a World Cup to recover but this one is is different so I don't think there's the usual build-up of excitement but there will be once it gets really close um you know that we're just at the moment we're going through that thing where we're discussing all the issues we all know this was a corrupt bid in the first place it's been proven most of the people in the FIFA committee are either either locked up behind bars or they're they're banned from football or they've been fined um all those things so we we know all that it's one of those things where we're kind of stuck with where it is it's not ideal we'll have a lot of that in the build up as we're already getting at talking about quite rightly about human rights issues and homophobia and those kind of things in that country but from my experience this is generally what happens wherever the world cup is because you know you could go 4 years ago we was in russia they only a few years before invaded crimea we you can go back to the 1934 world cup if you want and uh, and that was used as a as a tool by Italy's Mussolini to kind of push fascism. Um, so we've had these things. 2014 in Brazil, there were massive demonstrations on the streets and um, by the people saying we shouldn't be spending all this money on stadiums. We should be spending it on social care, etc. 2010, there were concerns in South Africa about people's safety. So there's always something. The probably the levels of this one. Um, a win on many counts it shouldn't shouldn't be played there because it was a corrupt bid and it was in the summer and all sorts of issues 
but it is where it is and um which is a change from the saying <laughs> it is what it is um so we'll um you know we'll get on with it we'll we'll um, but once the football starts i think it you know it, it'll it'll be different and a unique world cup especially for us broadcasting because we're actually able to be in the ground of every game that we cover because it's it's obviously so close to each other so that's a positive because it's always better to do a broadcast if you're actually in the ground watching the game rather than a soulless studio somewhere. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I will be excited about it. But at the moment, I've got much of the day tomorrow, so I've got a show before. It's like, you know, that old, uh, old cliche, take, take each game as it comes. But um, there's, a round, there's a World Cup round the corner and it's just going to suddenly be on us and then we'll be off and running and everyone will go bonkers if England start doing well and, and that sort of stuff. And even Wales, of course, we better mention them. I wonder. I wonder what, what do you think that viewers want? I mean, what, what's your sense of what viewers want? I mean, clearly they want the football, but how much of the politics? I mean, that, that's a, that's a balancing act, isn't well, it? Well, it is, and and we all know. Well, we don't all know, but um, you know, we've had various chats with the likes of Amnesty International and people like that in terms of discussing it. And sports washing works if you stop talking about the issues. We will talk about them. I mean, I think our opening show will be like a mini panorama, probably, because we've got the opening game. I wonder whether you, you, the BBC, ICV, have sort of considered a sort of more, a, a bigger political statement. And I was looking back, and I, there, there is a precedent for this. I mean, the 1982 World Cup, the opening game, where, which featured Argentina, both ITV and the BBC boycotted it because of the Falklands War. Do you think there was ever any consideration to, to making a statement like that? Um, I don't know what's... Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually know that. I mean, I'll take your word for that. That's true. But, um, uh, I mean, there was 1978, you go, and there's the, the incredible Argentina, the junta behind there, and they're... they're former president was locked up there's all sorts of um, histories between the various countries that are involved in in hosting the world cup i don't there's been no there were no conversations with with the uh, with bbc and itv about not showing a particular game no i don't think that would have um, crossed your mind we're not really there to su- support it we're there to report it and i think there's a there's a big difference in that I'm working for ITV out there, Jake. Gary's obviously presenting for the BBC. And I've been party to a number of conversations with the senior editorial team at ITV. And it has been made really, really clear that that we are covering a football tournament. We are not promoting the country in the way that you you know. Often when you go to a World Cup, you talk about its fabulous places to visit. You're practically doing a tourism uh, promotion for the nation you go to. And it's been made 100% clear that that will not be happening. We will will not be... um, uh, doing a big song and dance about why Qatar is a great place to go. Uh, it, it, that, it, the opposite, if anything. So I think tonally it'll feel different from other World Cups. I just want to ask uh, about the future of Goalhanger. Is, is podcasting the, the, the sort of mainstay of the business now or are you going to continue to do TV work alongside it as well? Absolutely, we're going to continue to do TV work. We uh, we love making uh, TV programmes. We've made a number of documentaries this year. We, Gary's been and just completed a series on Golden Boot winners. We went to see Toto Scalacci in Sicily. We went to see uh, Thomas Muller in in uh, Munich. Gary himself, we, we hired Jürgen Klinsmann to interview Gary as the Golden Boot winner from 86. Jürgen, of course, having won the World Cup, but not, but not a Golden Boot. Yes, we've got plenty in the pipeline on the TV front. But yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting. I mean, the, the, the final thing I would say about this, the contrast between these two worlds is, 
In TV, we, we come up with an idea and we, we try to persuade a commissioner at a broadcaster to, that it's a good idea, that they, want to, that they want to invest in it. In podcasting, the difference is that if we have an idea for something, we can go direct to the audience. There's, there's no need to persuade a commission. There's no need to, to do a, a huge song and dance about why we think this is the right thing to do and why a broadcaster will get a good return on their investment. We don't have to do that. We can just, we can just try stuff out. Not everything we've done has worked, but um, uh, it, we've, there's been a lot of learnings along the way and we've really, and we've really enjoyed, I, I don't want to sound too up myself here, but the, the creative freedom of being able to experiment with ideas that we have. Would anybody have allowed Goalhanger, who have a reputation for making sports programmes, to make a politics show that has become the, the nation's biggest audio show? Would anybody have allowed us to do that? Would it, would, could we have gone to the BBC or ITV or whoever, whoever it might have been and said, look, we've got an idea for a politics show, and would they have believed in us to make it? But the beauty of podcasting is we just thought, let's give it a go. I don't think the BBC would take it either because Alistair Campbell battering Boris Johnson each week <laughs> and Rory doing the same thing. I'm not sure we'll, we'll pass their impartiality rules. They'll have a nervous <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> the, the thing on uh, the rest of this history is it, it strikes me as being very Reithian, very public service broadcasting. And I sort of wonder, do you think that the likes of the BBC, Channel 4, ITV look on slightly enviously at the, at the success of that? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I doubt they look on enviously. Um, somebody might do there that's in control of something. But you've got to remember the BBC is, is, is many thousands of people. It's not just one. People always say the BBC saying this and it's actually well, it's one person that works for the BBC. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what they think about. Um, our success but they've got obviously um, BBC have got BBC Sounds where they push all their own uh, podcasts one of which is the Match of the Day Top 10 which is on, on that platform so you know they've got their own audience it won't be they're never as big because obviously when we do our podcast the general ones rest is politics rest is history we have ways empire all those are on on all possible podcast platforms so the numbers will always be bigger than they will if for match of the day one which is only on bbc sounds even though the match of the day one is certainly one of the top two or three podcasts that the bbc has think i think it's second to one other i think yeah, I mean, they've lost a few podcasts, haven't they, recently? With the- no, I, I, I suppose they have, and, 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 and they will do because of that probable reason that they can't get quite the reach of perhaps podcasts that are on all platforms. Um, I don't know. And, and maybe podcasts becoming bigger business, so people want to put them out there and get, get them heard more often. Because whenever you do something, obviously you want it heard, and the more people that listen to it, the better it does, and the more satisfied you are yourselves with that particular podcast that was gary lineker and tony pasta from goal hanger podcast it's time for a short break but don't go anywhere we'll be back after this with a segment on media freedom plus the media quiz uh, we will reveal who's been hacked off selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back with our big media brains for part two. In the same week as journalists gathered for the Society of Editors Media Freedom Awards, concerns have been raised about the state of press freedom. An LBC reporter was among three journalists arrested on Tuesday at Just Stop Oil protests on the M25. Charlotte Lynch, filmmaker Rich Felgate and photographer Tom Bowles were taken into custody for several hours despite having proof of their press credentials. Hertfordshire police initially said that the arrests were perfectly proper but has since backtracked saying that they recognise the concerns about press freedom. Did anyone watch Charlotte Lynch's interview on LBC or listen to her interview? I've read sort of excerpts but no, I haven't listened to the whole thing. It was an incredibly clear-eyed account of what happened you know having read a bit Tara does it does it raise concerns for you yeah I think it does for me and the fact that I think was it Rich Felgate said that or was one of the um others arrested said that the police officer had said it was he was being arrested under section one of of uh pace which is sort of allows police officers to stop and detain uh and search if they believe something's been stolen or prohibited articles why police officers are arresting journalists if journalists are not being respected particularly by police officers for doing their job then you know we're entering into a whole another era and we have to I think as Lise Doucette said when I interviewed her a while ago she said you know democracy lies in darkness if those press freedoms start to go we we end up on a slippery slope now whether or not it's the police officers weren't informed I've got friends who are police officers it's an incredibly difficult job a friend of mine the other day, spent a long time arresting someone only for that person then to go free. By the time he'd done the paperwork, that person had walked free. They have a lot of paperwork, they have a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of demands on their time. But equally, they need to be to be taught about, you know, if, if there's someone there with a press pass who is representing media freedoms, that needs to be respected. Liz, what would you be telling your university students about this? I would be telling them what I've always told them and what we've taught them from the beginning, which is that if you're on a public highway and you want to take photographs or you want to do camera work and you want to film, you're absolutely entitled to do so and you can't be moved on. I think this is a terrible mistake by the police. I think pace is absolutely ludicrous to apply pace to this situation. 
because that's about um, you know moving stolen goods and and you know terrorism and so on and this is clearly not what they were dealing with I feel actually quite angry about it that it could ever have happened. I feel for the first time, and I'm usually a bit of a cultural optimist, but I feel quite frightened by the fact that this could could happen in our country. I feel that the outcry, it just isn't crying out enough. I'm almost incoherent, aren't I, with rage about this? And um, I think that that there has to be a, a recalibration of the relationship between the press and the police. We really have to think about that relationship and examine it because these officers presumably thought they were doing the right thing, obviously, you know, a, a citizen journalist. What on earth was there to gain from these arrests? I just don't get it. Why, why did they arrest them? What were they doing which was in any way disadvantageous to the general public? They were on a bridge, for goodness sake. I really don't get it and I'm very, very unhappy about it. Liz, Liz, what, what I, I can see your anger is, and it's good to hear your views on the podcast. But what, what do you think has changed? Why, why is this happening, where it wasn't perhaps happening before? I haven't got all the, the details, but the law has changed, and there is a different attitude towards protesters. And I think the trouble is that the police see the journalists as part of the problem. They see the journalists as almost encouraging the protesters, and therefore, as the enemy, we have a different attitude now to people going on protest marches and probably because of Extinction Rebellion largely, and also the, the fear of terrorism. So that we, we're much more worried about protest in this country than we've ever been before. And the journalists have got wrapped up into this. The attitude is that the press is somehow part of the problem, and it is absolutely not part of the problem. So there does need, as I say, to be this calibration of the relationship. And somebody, the Home Secretary maybe, yeah, in somebody in that sort of role, hmm, well, has to come out and say this is not the way that we treat the press in the UK. Do you think Suella Braverman's going to do that, Stephen? No, she should. She should absolutely do it. I mean, you know, this is absolutely, you know, could be laid at Pretty Patel's door and the kind of anti-democratic measures that she sort of slid in last year when people said this was going to happen. But Liz is absolutely right. You know, there is a there's a strange thing where we've become the enemy within, the enemy without, whatever it is. And it's it's very, very dangerous for democracy. You know, America right now, you know, having an election on on the future of democracy. This is happening here. This is a, this is potentially our abortion argument and whatever else. She starts to silence journalists and arrest them and stop, you know, free and, and truthful reporting. That's the end. I mean, that is a dictatorship coming, you know, and it's it's very, very unpleasant to, to watch it coming because you can feel it coming in this sort of gradual, insidious way. The politicians should be fighting for this. The Labour Party should be standing up and decrying it. No one seems to be saying much and they seem to be allowing journalists to be blackened as somehow not, you know, good for society when a free press is absolutely vital. We can all see that. We can all rationalise it. And yet it's happening anyway. It's a frightening thing to see. And and the ignorance of the police, because they always, you know, claim that, that, oh, we didn't know, we were trying, isn't a good enough excuse. You know, these are people who are should be trained professionals and and even if they arrest a journalist, they should be, a, you know, a, a, a released within 10 minutes or something, because once you can, you can easily prove who's a journalist and who's not in these kind of events, you know. There is something as well called the World Press Freedom Index, which is of, of 180 countries, which you probably know about, particularly you, um, Liz. And I'm always surprised at, actually, I always look at where the UK is. Maybe if there was a bit more attention paid to that, to, to where we are in that table, because we have this assumption, oh, well, it couldn't happen in the UK. But, you know, you know, 
people thought it couldn't mm-hmm. happen in in the US. Look it what happened in happening. America. You know, it's it's uh, particularly at this moment, mm. at this time of unrest. There is there is so much potential unrest going on with the cost of living crisis, potential social unrest. So not allowing journalists to report on that is going to hamper future debate about around democracy or threaten democracy itself. And the police need to ensure that 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 their officers un- understand that. I know legislation changes and, and moves and it's, and it's sometimes down to interpretation. But, you know, whether or not there is a, a digital NUJ um, press card, I, I've still got my old old plastic one so I don't know really um <laughs> I haven't updated it but I don't know what there is or some kind of you know you, you're not it's not like in a war zone where you're wearing your jacket with press and blazing in front of it but perhaps also because there are citizen journalists out there so they're, they're used to people filming but you know if you've got big camera equipment it's different you can see that obviously can't you I think Charlotte said she produced her her global e-badge as a symbol of her press status but you're right. I mean, there's, you know, not everyone's an NUJ member as well, are they? So there's sort of not one single form of accreditation for journalists. I mean, this but... is this is so important. It, it's not about, it is about journalists, obviously, and it's really important that journalists are allowed to do their job. But we're going to get to a situation where any individual isn't going to be able to take legitimate photographs of, of the world around them. And that's ludicrous. It, it's much bigger. I'm, in my world, mm. there's not much that's bigger than journalism. You know, that's my whole life. But this is even bigger than journalism. Okay, one we'll definitely keep an eye on on the media podcast. Just to be clear, police in Hertfordshire said that they've taken additional measures to ensure that legitimate media are able to do their job. They've also requested that an independent police force examines its approach to the arrests and identifies, and I quote, any learnings we should (laughs) be taking in managing these challenging situations. So... That's their point of view. Finally, this week, it's media quiz time. Our theme is hacked off as we spotlight victims of hacking or those who have just simply voiced grumpiness at rumbling media scandals. As always, with the media quiz, you need to buzz in with your name. So, Liz, you'll say... Uh, Stephen. No, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. This is always difficult I get very confused with this. Stephen? (laughs) I'll say Stephen. And Tara? I'll say Jake. No, I'll say Tara. <laughs> Actually, can I change it? I'd like, sorry, I'd like to say Madonna, <laughs> given Stephen's remarks. Madonna, Stephen, you can be David Attenborough. Uh, does that mean I'm Matt Hancock? Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Let, let's, let's do the quiz. Uh, which former British Prime Minister joined a chorus of criticism over the Crown reinventing royal history? Liz. Matt Hancock. Stephen. Liz, you got there first. Liz, what's the answer? Oh, Tony Blair. Tony Blair. That's right. Yes. Yes. And, uh, well, I mean, look, we've, we've talked briefly about the show already. Yeah. It launched on Wednesday. You have to see Johnny Lee Miller as John Major. I mean, he's really, he's really good. If you haven't seen mm. him, you have to. You have to John see. Major being sexy, basically, in a dull way. Yeah. The very, the very, very narrow yes. kind of uh, acting range, but he... He makes him very sort of square jawed, but somehow dull. It's a, it's a very, it's very weird to watch it. Yes, I've heard people try to reconcile that online. Do I now find John Major attractive? Only for Edwina Curry. <laughs> I was at school with Edwina Curry. And Edwina oh, right. Curry, and I can see what she sees in John Major. Maybe it's a Liverpoolian age thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Liz, you're you're ahead. You've got your nose in front. Second question: 
Uh, which BBC journalist was among a hundred public figures targeted by a group of Indian cyber criminals? Sorry, you're buzzing <laughs> in with your name, but it's, it, the answer's not Matt Hancock. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's your that's your suit your podcast pseudonym. <laughs> yeah, go on. What's the answer? Chris Mason. Okay, this this media quiz is becoming immensely confusing. <laughs> but yes, Chris Mason's right. Yes, the Sunday Times and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which uh, exposed his story on Sunday, suggested that he he received phishing emails as as part of this, and uh, but wasn't lured by the bait. So yes, Tari, you're right. It was Chris Mason, which means Stephen, I don't think you're going to win this one. Uh, which means that you no. know we we've got a we've got a tiebreak situation here between Tara and Liz, unless you can level it, Stephen. So the third question: Which Hollywood star said last week that she suffered a breakdown after discovering her phone was hacked by the News of the World? Stephen, the answer is Sienna Miller. Okay, is that yes, right? You're right. She was giving an interview in Vogue, and Miller was awarded one hundred thousand pounds in damages in two thousand eleven in a high court hearing when the news of the world admitted hacking her phone. So I think that's a, that's a score draw. We should really come up with some sort of dead heat, shouldn't we? Some some <laughs> uh, some sort of deadlock, as, uh, as X Factor would call it. But we'll say that you're all winners, and we're all winners for having you on Yay! the podcast. So thank you. Before we wrap up, can you tell us where our listeners can find your work? Tara, do you want to start off? Uh, Guardian, the Royal Television Society, Broadcast Magazine... Bunty, Wizard and Chips, The Dandy. That's my full gamut. But yeah. <laughs> and what's your Twitter handle? Oh, oh, what, my officially handle? verified double blue tick yeah. at Tara Conlan while I'm still on Twitter. I think there are genuine questions about whether Twitter will still exist this time next week. Stephen, how about you? Well, I can be found in the sort of the nether regions of the uh, archives of TV with all my glory days being still churned out late at night. Or you might see me in the Times next week. I'm doing a piece on uh, on a new book. And I am joining Mastodon or whatever it's called. So uh, farewell to Twitter and hello to whatever Mastodon is. I don't actually know what it is or how to get on it or anything, but apparently that's the place to be. Thank you, Stephen. And finally, Liz. I'm a professor emerita at City University and have taught lots of people, including Chris Mason, who I once advised not to put all his eggs in the basket of being a BBC political correspondent. So <laughs> I'm very embarrassed about that now, and I think he's, br- he's brilliant. Yeah. I'm also an author of Murder Mysteries, which you can get on Amazon. And uh, generally, if you want to find out more about me, I'm sort of on the internet. But I don't do Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to go read your books now, Liz. Thank you to our brilliant guests and to you, our loyal listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to hear more from Gary Lineker and our previous Deep Dive guests, consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com slash mediapod. You'll be able to access an archive of Deep Dive interviews with media experts. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. And of course, to help support the show, please make sure you've done two small things. Follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on a Friday. Subscribe at podfollow.com forward slash the media podcast and tell a friend or colleague about this week's show. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Phoebe Adler Ryan with support from Matt Hill, and it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.